This episode of the DLU podcast is brought to you by Goalie Nutrition. As someone who's used Goalie for quite some time, I can tell you that they're not only very good, but they're very beneficial. My favorite are the Super Green Gummies. The Super Green Gummies are uniquely crafted with a spectrum of essential nutrients such as vitamins A, B12, folic acid, and theamine. It supports a healthy liver function, healthy nervous and immune system, digestive health, a boost to your metabolism, and overall health and well-being. There are no artificial sweeteners, flavors, or colors from artificial sources. They're vegan-friendly, gluten-free, and gelatin-free. All loyal listeners of the DLU podcast get a special 10% discount at checkout. Go to Goalie.com, use promo code D-L-E-W. That's Goalie.com, use promo code D-L-E-W. This podcast is a Believe Network and Luciete production. Welcome to another edition of the DLU Podcast brought to you by Believe Network. I'm your host, Derek T. Lewis, and I want to thank you all for your continuous support of this show. You know, I'm really you know, appreciating the leaps and bounds, you know, the show is taking, you know, in all aspects. And a huge shout out to Believe Network for giving me the um, opportunity to do more with this show, as I've alluded to earlier in the week, where I'm going to be doing some additional pro wrestling coverage in addition to the format that I'm doing on Thursdays. But what I want to talk about this week is a guy that I've known for about a good five years. Uh, we met at Jungle City Studios in New York City, and you know, we were I was looking for someone to do a remix for every second, you know, my uh, my my uh, my EP. You know, and for the single every second make it count. And, you know, DJ Yoshi and I have a really, really good, not just business relationship, but a good friendship. And not only did he do that for me, but he also did my photo shoot I did back in the fall. So, you know, we've we've gone a long ways and he did not hesitate at all to um, come onto the show and talk about his career, his life and everything in between. And let's not wait any longer. My interview with DJ Yoshi starts right now. Well, ladies and gentlemen, to say that it's an honor and a privilege to have someone on my show, I don't just say it just for the art, just for the sake of just saying it, but when I truly mean, in my opinion, a giant in the DJ music space. I truly mean that from the bottom of my heart. This man, it, he was once the official DJ for the New Jersey Devils, but he is currently the official DJ for the following. The Big Ten Conference, the Little League World Series, the USFL, and Army football. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only DJ Yoshi. Thank you for coming on. How you doing, man? What's up, D? Thank you for having me. Hey man, like I said, it's an honor to have you on. You know, you're extremely busy, and to take the time to uh, to do my show, like I'm, I'm truly honored. But let's get right into the interview, man. Um, you grew up in the North Jersey, New York City area, so let's talk about life growing up in the area. Ooh, what do you want to talk about? Everything. 
whatever whatever you are in i guess whatever you're comfortable talking about we're gonna talk about pizza we're gonna talk about uh how in some areas everyone's italian (laughs) everything how everyone knows uh somebody who knew someone from the sopranos yeah right (laughs) (laughs) so what, what was it like for young yoshi growing up in the area Young Yoshi, uh, so we were initially, you know, uh, New York City kids, and my parents decided to move us to Jersey. So basically, I don't remember living in New York as a kid. It was, we're living in Jersey, and we were in Jersey City. And at the time, it was not Jersey City of what it is now of gentrified and everything being beautiful. It was shoot 'em up, stab 'em up Jersey City, where. The corner store uh, down the end of the block, Mars Corner Store, right on Newark Ave. Mm-hmm. You know th- that was generally a place for shooting stabbings, and my parents eventually, you know, ponied up, moved us, moved us out of there, and they moved us to Livingston, which is uh, an, an affluent neighborhood. And for those who don't know, at the time in the late '80s, early '90s. There was like no black people and no Asian people in Livingston. It was like you went from being in an inner city to being in the legit burbs. And I loved it. You know, I I loved my parents for their sacrifice. You know, uh, when we first moved, it was a lot of money to, to buy a house in Livingston. It still is a lot of money to buy a house in Livingston. For sure. Um, so there were times where we would have like rice and ketchup for dinner. And, you know, my grandparents would always say, my grandma would always say, oh, you know, it's, it's the meal of Kings, rice and rice, eggs and spam, the meal of Kings or like rice and ketchup. Uh, you don't know how lucky you are unless you have rice and ketchup. And at the time you're thinking, Man, I'm 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 really living. Until we got a little bit older, and then you know some of the folks who we went to school with, we saw the kind of money that they had, mm. and it never made this question. You know, our our value. It was just okay, and you know, for that was my first experience in. Okay, so there's people who have a lot of money in a big house. There's people who have a lot, a lot of money in a really big house, and then there's us. You know, and and I was okay, and I still am okay with how we grew up. You know, we, we were safe, we were loved, and we had opportunity. That's that's all you know a parent could ask for, and that's all that we wanted. Yeah, man, and it's like even me. It's like I grew up in Newark, but as much as you know, people say and it look, some people look down upon you know where I'm from or whatever, and I'm just like, listen, you know, my mom sacrificed, my, I mean, and clearly, you know, I made out okay. You know what I mean? So. Mm-hmm. It's not about, you know, the lack thereof. It's all about appreciation appreciation of what you do have and you cherishing those things. And that's how you definitely bond as a family. So I'm definitely glad to hear you and definitely tell your story in that regard. So while you were while you were going to school in Livingston, so were you involved in sports? Were you involved in other other activities or anything? Like what were some of the things you were involved in while you're in school? Yeah, you know, the first thing that I that they got us involved in, of course, being an Asian family was music. Mm-hmm. So um, the piano started playing when I was four years old mm. and 
moved to Livingston, and then it was okay. Like, hey, I want to play basketball. I want to play baseball. Baseball was the first sport that I ever played, okay. and it was my first love and my first passion. And then I fell in love with playing basketball. You know, I I played basketball throughout throughout high school, and I I really thought that I was going to go and play like D three ball somewhere. I was just a, 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 a dream, right, to, to mm-hmm. do that. I knew it was never really going to happen, but it was just like, oh, it's nice to dream. It's nice to strive for a goal and strive for something bigger than just living. So uh, I bowled also in high school. I was on on uh, the, the team that went to the state championship two years in a row. Oh, wow. I could say that I yeah, I, I had a 183 average, and I blew it in the in the state finals. All I had to do was was roll a 179. I rolled the freaking 95, bro. <laughs> oh, wow, what I happened? <laughs> I folded to the pressure, D. I folded to the pressure. Oh man! Oh, wow, wow. So you basically cut the average in half, and and ultimately <laughs> in front of my family, in front of friends that drove to see me. Because I was already DJing. Right. And I was already in a club. So I was promoting it on AOL at the time in different chats. Mm-hmm. Yo, come see me at the at the state championship game. And yeah, a 95, bro. I rolled a 95. Wow. Wow. Well, sorry. Sorry you had to go through that. <laughs> Man. Ooh. I can't even I can't even imagine what the feeling of that. That's ooh, man. I so, later went back to that lane. I went back to that lane mm-hmm. and I rolled a 279. Because <laughs> I just needed that for myself. Absolutely. Nothing wrong with that. You know, like 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 Johnny Drama and Entourage <laughs> at the at the final scene in the movie. Yeah. Where he raises his arms. Victory! <laughs> That's exactly how I I felt like like Matt Dillon in that final scene of Entourage. Right. Vindication, man. I love it. I love it. So you said your first exposure to music when you were four, you were playing the piano. So just in regards to like popular music and everything, what was what I guess what artist was some of your, your first exposure into like pop culture music wise? Oh, pop culture? Yeah, Beethoven. <laughs> 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 Beethoven, bro. Beethoven, Mozart, Chopin. Those those were the people that I was listening to, and those were the people that I was I was playing and understanding their music and you know that stuff like really resonated with me classical music i still love classical music i will Mm. play classical music on my way to an event on my way home from an event sometimes i play classical music at home if i'm cooking Mm -hmm. and pop music wise i was a rock kid growing up okay you know um bon jovi U2, um, Guns N' Roses, Def Leppard. Those were the groups that I was listening to. Uh, aside from, you know, the, the the big pop sensations like Mariah Carey, NKOTB, uh, Tiffany, Debbie Gibson. Right. So basically, and, I mean, you and I are not, we're, we're very close in age. So we basically grew up yes. in that MTV era where things were just the exposure was there, you know, for every yes. and just the, just the bands that you mentioned. It's just like taking me back to like, man, like just and they, they made an announcement that MTV News was going away after 36 years and just saying, man, it's part of my childhood. You know what I mean? So I totally get what you're saying there. So 
you alluded to it. You started DJing in 1996 and you were still in high school. So when did the DJ bug start to come around? When did you when did you learn? How did it enter your mind is saying, you know, I'm going to start spinning the ones and twos a little bit. Yeah, I was in sixth grade when I learned. Uh, my brother graduated from eighth grade mm-hmm. and for graduation, he wanted turntables. So my parents uh, gave him money and he and his best friend and another friend, they came together. They bought Gemini turntables and a mixer from Radio Shack. Wasn't even a gem sound mixer, guys. It was a that, that old school mixer from Radio Shack that you saw. And when my brother would go out, I would run downstairs and I would turn I would turn the turntables on and I would try to mix. Mm-hmm. I had no clue what I was doing except for me watching him and watching videos and listening to Flex and mm-hmm. uh you know spin bad red alert capri i would listen to how they were playing and what they were doing and mm-hmm. i'm like man how, how, how did he do that and that's that's basically how i learned until i got older um in eighth grade and two world-class djs just happened to be friends with my brother and they taught me the legitimate ins and outs of how to mix basic scratching and how to format a party set and how to make a mixtape. So shout out to Philly Blunt, shout out to Vin Rock. Those are the guys that I learned how to play from early on. And then I took that and I translated that to, to high, you know, high school in 95. And I was doing... Uh, I was doing high school parties, you know, like high school dances, mm-hmm. basement parties, and 1997 rolls around. I get invited to go play at, at the time, it was the Blue Moose Tavern in New York. And I'm like, oh, it's just going to be a small bar. It was like a two-story club. Oh, wow. So my first my first club experience in New York was the Blue Moose Tavern. I'm doing a, a, a college party there. And, you know, I'm 16 years old doing a college party. And from there, it was, well, hey, there, there are these promoters who, that want to book you. I'm like, okay, so let's do it. And my brother is just like, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll just manage your career to start. I was like, okay, cool. So he would take my my mixtapes and he would pass them around and we would uh, put mixes up on AOL, you know, it, like little five minute mixes that would take five hours to upload. And that fifty six K modem, right? That, yo, we we were on twenty eight eight. We were on twenty eight eight, son. That was pre fifty six K. Twenty eight point eight. Oh man, see, okay, for a lot of you youngins that are listening to this episode right now, please understand how lucky and fortunate you are to have Wi Fi connected to all of your wireless devices because see back in our day and you know pre in the, in the late 1900s we would have to actually put our phone jack you know we had you know plug the phone jack to the back of our actual tower computers and dial up to get onto the internet and if somebody picked up the phone it would knock you completely off 
So that was the era, and that was the time that me and Yoshi grew up in, just for the record. But, but you mentioned mm-hmm. exactly. But you mentioned Red Alert, you mentioned Capri, you mentioned Flex, and you and, and you, you you mentioned some heavy hitters and some OGs in the game that's been that's been doing this and has been uber successful in this game for decades. Guys that aren't respected, guys that I still respect to this very day and, and the contributions they made to the culture. But that's incredible that, you know, before the age of 18, like you're DJing, you know, college parties and everything, which is, that's incredible. Speaking of college, you do go to Rutgers University, majoring in computer science, math, and music. So was it, once you got to college, you know, you're going to classes and everything, was it an easy end? to just DJ some parties at Rutgers or you were pretty much doing the club scene at that point? I was already doing clubs. Um, it made it easier to get people to come to the clubs because my friends were finally old enough to come see me in the city. You know, sure. when, when you're, when you're 16 mm-hmm. and you're in a sheltered environment that is Livingston, New Jersey, mm-hmm. right? It's entitled, uh, predominantly white privileged children whose parents are doctors, surgeons, business owners, you know, like the average kid that I went to school with, this is how entitled they were at 16 years old. They're getting like Range Rovers and Benzes driving Audis. That's that's the general the generational wealth of what we grew up in right right so super sheltered they couldn't go out before um and you know speaking of flex red alert and capri i was fortunate enough that when i was sick by the time i was 16 i was playing at the tunnel where flex's main residency was and that's how I got my break. You know, um, Flex was on the main floor. Downstairs was uh, Scissor Hands and Riz of the Crooklyn Clan. Mm-hmm. And Big Cap would open for Flex. And I was all the way at the top, 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 go through the, the, the corridor and then the small coat check area and then go through the co ed bathroom. And then there was just this room up there. And that's where I was. And one day cap wasn't able to open and they asked me hey do you want to open on the main floor like fuck open for flex big opportunity right the main floor that's man just brought back all the memories and all, right, and, right, right. And all the yeah so by the time i got into college then it was Oh, well, I've heard your mixtapes before, guys, because, you know, back then, you know, in in 99, we were doing mixtapes or mini discs instead of CDs. Like, I actually didn't do my first mix CD until 2000. You know, so people be like, oh, yeah, I I heard your mixtape before. Like, oh, cool. You'll come to the club. So it gave me the ability to work with promoters and say, hey, I want to make more money. Well, you need to bring people if you want to make more money. Well, cool, Mm -hmm. you know, and and people were promoting for my brother and his friends and other friends and my friends. They would promote for me on my nights that I'm at the clubs. 
So, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'm, I'm playing sets and two, three, 400 people would come out for, for me, right? That's on top of the regular club people, but two, three, 400 people were coming out. I'm like, damn, this is, this is crazy. And you're generating income in, in a sense of revenue. I mean, if, if they're charging back then, maybe 25, 30 ahead times 400 people to see DJ Yoshi alone, that's, that's incredible. Yeah, so they were making eight grand off of it, you know, and for those who could drink, an extra five thousand dollars. So thirteen thousand dollars was being made off of the brand of the time, and that's how I was able to negotiate higher rates. And then when I actually signed with my first official manager, shout out to Nathan Sheard, I love you, my bro. He was able to say, "Listen." He's bringing 300 people to the club. You know, he's not touching the turntables for longer than two hours. And you're going to pay him X amount of money. And the clubs were like, okay, cool. So that was that was that experience. Wow. Just, just going through that whole timeline in regards to you just getting that one opportunity to open up for flex because someone couldn't make it sometimes it's like that you know what i mean whereas like you don't know when that opportunity is going to come but you just have to just keep your nose to the grind and when the opportunity stay ready so you don't have to get ready you know what i mean mm. and and i and i experienced that as an actor too when i booked my very first film it was yeah. like it was it's how it happens you know I what i mean how was that? Because I've I've always wondered, you know, like you're 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 grinding out there as as someone who's trying to act. Uh, you get your comp cards together, you get your reels together. How was it for you? And I want to know how how was it for you compared to the music career and now the podcasting career? How difficult was for, was it for you to get an agent to be able to do that? Book it. Well, audition and book it versus what you're doing right now. Well, here's a story. I started acting in 2010. And I remember going to my very first audition. And mind you, I didn't get signed for years later. I'm just going to put that out there right now. I was working without an agent for years. And what I did is my very first audition was in Chicago. And I went out there on my own on a Greyhound bus, 39 hours round trip didn't you know i didn't get the role and that's fine you know what i mean i was, to I was totally fine with that but then of course i just wanted to get set experience so i didn't care where i could work or whatever the case if it was for free i didn't care i just wanted to get footage i just wanted to get set experience and this one particular film and shout out to rafiq khan and shout out to adrian Farr, who was the um, casting director for that film uh chess boxing was being filmed it was an independent film being shot in the city and I, I, they said, hey, we need background extras for a club scene in Soho. Okay, cool. I'll be there. It was Sunday night. No big deal. I show up. And one, I think from the, I remember from my first acting class I ever took, they always said, no matter if you're principal, if you're supporting, if you're background, always just bring extra stuff with you. You never know. And I remember, and guys, I hope I'm not boring you with this story, but this, yo, she wanted to know, and I'm going to ask, I'm going to tell. So, I remember calling the casting director, Adrian, the night before. I said, hey, um, I'm driving up. I'm driving from Delaware. Is there going to be parking, you know, for, 
you know, for the, um, you know, for street parking. And they said, yeah, why? And I'm like, oh, I'm coming from Delaware. And she said, are you sure you want to do this? And you're coming all the way from Delaware. And I'm just like, I don't care. I want to be there. And I was, she was like, okay, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad you uh, told me. So I go to set. I'm there. I check in. I'm going into holding down at this, uh, I forgot the name of the club. It was a bar slash club in uh, Soho. And I'm just sitting there and we're just sitting around. We're filling out paperwork. And I remember Adrian coming over to me. She said, hey, I need to see you for a second. And I'm like, okay. I'm thinking they're going to send people home. I mean, I thought they were going to send me home because I'm like, why haven't we got started yet? This is, I mean, I got there at eight o'clock. This has to be about 930. So she said, hey, this is um, this is the director. Say hello to him. I said, hi. And you know, he was like, um, this is the assistant director here. I'm like, how you doing? And again, I'm thinking they're going to send me home. They said, hey, we overbooked this. You know, sorry, we made you drive all these hours, you know, to get here. The director was like, listen, we're in a bind right now. Um, how long have you been acting? I said, seven months. <laughs> and he was like, um, what cl- what um, article of clothing, of that's the color black, did you have? I said, uh, blazer, uh, button-down shirt, slacks. He said, stop what you're doing. You're the new bouncer. You have lines to learn. Go now. And he sends me downstairs to go to, to, to get changed. Then they're putting me hair and makeup. They're giving me my, they're giving me like the the sides the, for the for the scene. Like everything's happening at one time, and I'm, I guess, hard for me to even process this. And I get to, I get to set, and you know, we're getting ready to, you know, we did some rehearsal takes, and the principal actor wasn't even on, he wasn't even in the scene yet. So by the time he gets there, he's talking to me as if I had been, you know, casted for like three weeks. And the other bouncer's like, no, he's the new guy. He was like, what new guy? What are you talking about? And I'm like, yeah, hi, I just got here today. I'm Derek. He was like, he's like, you're new? I said, yeah. He's like, you just, he's like, you just learned these lines. I'm like, yeah. He said, all right, keep doing what you're doing. And, you know, that's how I booked my first movie. And we wrapped up at about 4.30 in the morning. He said, and and the director said, hey, man, you have no idea of the bind that you got us out of. Because basically the actor I don't even remember the dude's name now, but he thought that they were going to supply his wardrobe for him after they distinctly told him, you know, no, like, you know, you have to bring your own stuff. And he stuck around, though. He was like, hey, man, he's like, you look more like the bouncer than me anyway. So that's how I booked my first, you know, that's you're like six, ten. Yeah, right. <laughs> but the cool <laughs> thing, but the cool thing was, is that. That door opened. Someone said yes, so others could. And I just slowly, slowly build my resume, build my resume. So that and that that further opened doors for stuff down the line. So and now for all the things that I'm doing besides podcasting, you know, with music, you know, film, of course, and um, pro wrestling. So it's just that one yes in July 2010 that afforded me to be sitting here talking to you now. So I'm very fortunate. And I'm a. I think I didn't mean to, you know, hijack the interview because no, I've I've always wanted to know, you know, I, yeah. it's, you know, for all the conversations that we've shared and all the times that we've just bullshitted and spoken about life in general, I actually never asked that question, and I've always wanted to know. Yeah, and I mean, it's like it was it was a long road, and it's still a long road. And I mean, I but I don't let you know a bunch of no's get to me i don't let a, a bunch of uh 
you know, not, not it's not your time. It's not your time. And all I have to use that opportunity is to get better at what I do and also put my put my focus into the other things that I'm doing, too. That's helping me get to that goal. You know what I mean? But let's talk about some of the artists that you've worked with. And I'm looking at an array of talent here. We're talking about Diddy, Mariah Carey, Sean Paul, Mary J. Blige, John Legend, you know, Mari Povich, the B-52s, Jamie Foxx. Uh, prayers to Jamie Foxx, by the way. I hope he gets better. Um, Slick Rick, Guru, Black Sheep, and the list goes on and on. So how does one get the opportunity, especially in the DJ space, to be able to get into these circles and play the events for these for these artists and celebrities? So a lot of it is relationships and a lot of it is luck, you know, and, and luck is the intersection of being prepared and opportunity, mm-hmm. right? right? So the people who I have relationships with, they put me in the right opportunities at the right times. And it was always like, Hey, can you do this? Can you do this? Can Mm -hmm. you do this? Uh, we need someone to do this. And at the time when you're on the come up, you're like, yes, 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 yes. Right. You want to get as many opportunities as you can. I totally agree. So, you know, it teaches, it teaches you two things, the good and the bad, Mm -hmm. the good, is that if you work for it and you're prepared, it may happen to you. It may. I don't like when people put this out there of if you work hard and you grind hard and you know, you're on top of your game, that it's going to happen. 90% of the time, guess what? It's not going to happen. I hear no 90% of the time, sometimes 95% of the time, maybe Mm -hmm. even 99% of the time. But that 1% that I hear, yes, those are the opportunities that, you know, Derek just outlined for you. So just because you're working towards a goal doesn't mean you're going to hit your goal. So it also teaches, you know, uh, success in being prepared that way also teaches you uh, a negative thing. It teaches you that you have to work hard. You have to grind hard. You have to do everything hard. Lack of sleep. Sometimes lack of eating. Other times lack of money. And, you know, I, I didn't appreciate the opportunities that I had and the positions that I was put in to be set up for success versus just being in a position to set yourself up. So I didn't I didn't fully appreciate those and understand those until I was younger until I'm sorry until I was older and could fully comprehend uh, the motions that other people had set forth for me and I, I truly am appreciative for those people. This episode of the Delu podcast is brought to you by Goalie Nutrition. As someone who's used Goalie for quite some time, I can tell you that they're not only very good but they're very beneficial. My favorite are the Super Green gummies. The Super Green Gummies are uniquely crafted with a spectrum of essential nutrients such as vitamins A, B12, folic acid, and theamine. It supports a healthy liver function, healthy nervous and immune system, digestive health, a boost to your metabolism, and overall health and well-being. There are no artificial sweeteners, flavors, or colors from artificial sources. They're vegan-friendly, gluten-free, and gelatin-free. All loyal listeners of the d podcast get a special 10% discount at checkout. 
Go to Goalie.com, use promo code D-L-E-W. That's Goalie.com, use promo code D-L-E-W. I think that's life experience in itself because a lot of times when we're younger, we're just, all we know is the moment, right? That's all we, and that's all we're fixated on is the moment and not the other things underneath that we may, that we unknowingly may, may not appreciate at the time. And it's not, I'm pretty sure that you not being you know appreciative wasn't intentional. I just think that's just a matter of being young and just not, you have to go through some of those loops and some of those hurdles to look back and say oh i get it now mm. and you can you can thus you could talk about it now i yes. can i'm the same way you know what i mean and you can teach another that same lesson where it's like maybe some of the lessons you had to learn on your own now you can you can you can pass that information down to somebody else that you may be mentoring or something something like that right and that's what that's actually what i'm trying to do with the the, the new youtube page is uh I don't give away everything, but I give away 90% of the knowledge that I've, I've learned and gained over the time. Right, right. So I'm looking at the venues that you performed at, the theater at Madison Square Garden, you know, the Marquee, um, Dre's Las Vegas, um, Tris Las Vegas, um, Kiss and Fly, the Highline Ballroom New York, the Hammerstein Ballroom. One of my one of my favorite places. Oh, me too. Um, the, the Providence Atlantic City, you know, the HQ, you know, the government Toronto. What are some of the like if you say if you had your top three venues that you performed at and why are they your favorites? And what's some of the venues you would like to play for? Number one for me will always be the theater at Madison Square Garden, because at the time they weren't doing anything for DJs. They weren't doing anything for uh, the music community. It was just if you were in the garden, you're playing at the garden on the, you know, in the actual bowl of the garden. Right. Uh, this was a smaller event, you know, 2000 people. And it was me, DJ Icy Ice of the Beat Junkies from L.A., uh, DJ D Double from Chicago and jocelyn enriquez like th that was the event and to me that that holds so many good memories because by the time i was 19 i got to say that i played at the garden and not just to say it but actually be there be there and digest it and like holy shit, mom mm -hmm. you went from complaining that I was 16 years old being in a club to now your son is playing an event at Madison Square Garden. Garden. That will always be my favorite place. Uh, the second one is always going to be Highline Ballroom. I was a resident at Highline. Whew, 2009 to 2013. And so many great people, great artists. We had showcases you know, from eight to 11 o'clock and then I would DJ or I would DJ and then the artists would go on or I would DJ, the artists would go on and then I would close, you know, something like that. Um, so great event, event after event. And I met my wife there. So she was, she was actually in the crowd one night and uh, we met through a mutual friend. So that, that will always be my second favorite place. 
my third favorite place to play all time, always marquee. Shout out to Rich, John Schwartz, and the the folks at Tau Group. Marquee, New York, on a Thursday night, always a movie. And, you know, I was there, fortunately, for two years, three years also. And um, met a lot of great people from fashion to film and so many great memories. And by that, by that time, I was already working in the NFL. So NFL players and athletes in basketball, in the, you know, in the NBA, in the NFL, they would, hey, where, where are you at tonight? Oh, bro, I'm at Marquee. All right, yo, we're going to come out. Cool. Nice. That strengthened my relationship with them because it's just like, yo, you killed it. You want to do my wedding? Or, yo, I got I got a fashion event or I got a, f- a philanthropy event going on. You know, we're raising money for a good cause. Can you do it? Yeah. And that spun off because the people that were working in that scenario, mm-hmm. In, in that space, in the philanthropic space, then went on to go work for other foundations like the Reeve Foundation, um, you know, ASPCA and things like that, uh, Susan G. Komen. And that's how I got my in with those foundations. Incredible, incredible. The art of DJing. Take me through it. Because to me, and I've I've done DJing for those that know or don't know, I've done I've, I've done my share of wedding DJ, you know, DJ some weddings and some uh, other events and things of that nature. I've done it, but not at the level of a DJ Yoshi. I'm going to be <laughs> completely honest, but there is an art form to it. There is an art form of storytelling. So in your in your estimation, from your vision and from your eyes, let's talk about the art of DJing and how you were able to master it. Definitely not a master of it. I'm definitely not a master of it. It's um, I learned young what I should be proficient in, what I should be able to master. So master song structure, master the ability to match a beat, mm-hmm. and know when you should mix in, when you should mix out, when you shouldn't, and make it sound as good as possible. Uh, a lot of people will focus in on, oh, well, I want to be a prolific scratcher. That's cool. But unless you're a turntablist like Craze or A-Track and they're coming out to see you just do turntablistic stuff, you know, shout out to Qbert. The more that you scratch in a set in a club or an event, the more people hate you. So... Early on, I wanted to be this battle DJ and, you know, beat juggle and scratch and quick mix, you know, drop things. Mm-hmm. And I would always try to translate that to a club set. And then my brother's just like, bro, they're not here to listen to you fucking scratch. They're here to listen to you play the song. So just play the songs properly. And set songs up, pro- you know, set songs up right, and mix cleanly, and you'll be fine. And ever since then, I focused less on scratching. You know, I scratch enough, wiggy wiggy, just 
stabs and, you know, chirps and a, a, a rub here and there. But it's really focused in on cleanly bringing in the next song. And those are really the only things that I focus in on, um, aside from, you know, it being on beat or not just being on beat, but the vibe of each track that you mix into each other. Exactly. You know, because like you can't go from an EDM pumper to, you know, a, a rock joint back to an EDM pumper back to something else. Doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> right, it doesn't make sense. As long as you make the night and your set make sense, then people will feel it, and or they should feel it at least if 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 you're playing right. And that's that's really what I focus my, my time on. That's incredible. And again, it's it's you know what, and, and I say it before, you know, before I had um, asked you a question as far as it being storytelling, because in my mind, I've always thought that I want to send people home happy. And they can remember songs from that night, five, 10, 15 years down the line. You know what I mean? That's that, that's the goal. I want people, the way that I set up nights, right? And, and I have something on my YouTube that shows uh, how to be an, an opening DJ and then how to be a primetime DJ. Mm-hmm. So the way that I set up a night is R&B, 90s hip hop things that make you want to sing along Mm -hmm. get the people involved they understand that you have a knowledge of music and then you and then as you're picking up the tempo you're picking up from 90s to 2000s now you know you're you're an hour and a half in you play more current two and a half hours in you're playing bangers for the next hour and then that's it so you're taking them up and then before the next DJ goes, I bring it back down a little bit so that the next DJ, when he goes or he or she goes on, they're set up for success too. Cause now they get to bring it back up and, and bring the crowd on this amazing ride. Like you can't just keep on going up, 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 up. Because if you keep on going up, 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 it's impossible to maintain that tension. You need the tension and release. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, in a three minute song, it brings you on a wave of emotion, right? It's just intro, gets you into it. And then it's build up, oh my God. And then it's first hook. It's like, ah, oh, big drop. Oh man, there it is. And then you rebuild the tension and then you drop it again. That's kind of how I format a night is I build them up, hit them with a drop. Oh shit. But then you bring it back down and then you bring them up drop bring them back down down next dj on and it's no different honestly than a pro wrestling match and that's the god's honest truth absolutely it's it's the same and i'm in this as someone is in the wrestling business every match you got in other words you're, you're bringing the people on a journey you know what i mean you're telling stories all these other things you, you know the, the good guys you want to start off and get the shine then of course you got the bad guys gonna cut them off and you got to headlock and the fans gonna come and they, they clap come on come on come on and you bring them up boom you send them home that and it's no different that's why i love the the entertainment genre because of the storytelling that we do you know what i mean so if it's djing if it's you know being a vocalist if you're if you're in sports or whatever it's a story it's Damn a right. story Damn you're right. telling stories 
Now, you have the 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 pleasure, the the honor, and the privilege of being the official DJ for the Big Ten Conference, the, the Little League World Series, Army football, and the USFL. And I know once upon a time you had a, a relationship with the New Jersey Devils and also with the NFL. So, how does a DJ? How does a DJ be able to get a lot of these relationships, especially with a lot of these sports leagues? Yeah, so I was one of the first four in the NBA. Um, and I got that because of a relationship with DJ Irie. You know, shout out to my homie Irie. Uh, I pitched the Nets and I did it blindly. I sent uh, I sent a random deck to somebody and she responded, but she only responded after she did her research on me. And Irie co-signed me. So shout out to the homie Irie. He was the first NBA DJ down with Miami Heat. And from there, you establish relationships with the producers and the, the people who are assistants and you know the events team. And when they go to other places, then you have those relationships already, right? Right. When I left the Nets, I took a year off of just anything, you know, I was already touring with uh, Pepsi and Boost Mobile. So I just did the tours. I did the, the events that I was I was uh, pre-contracted for. I didn't touch a club. I just wanted to relax. You know, it, it had been so many years that I was doing it professionally that I just needed a break, big mental break. Mm-hmm. So during that time, I was like, what else can I do? And I was like, well, you know, I graduated from Rutgers. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rutgers has a great up-and-coming team. And I pitched Coach Shianu on it. Hey, let me take what I did at the Nets and bring it to college football. And I was like, should be great for recruits and for the fans. For sure. And at the time, I didn't know that we were building anything as special as it had become. But we were the first, uh, the, the the first. Um, I apologize, my uh, my my throat is dry. Oh, at at uh, Rutgers, we were the first to ever implement a DJ program at any major co- uh, college program. Re- right. Was it tied with Mason Gross or? No, 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 no. When I say DJ program, it's the DJ platform. Oh, okay. I see. I see. Within, okay. You know, gotcha. within sports entertainment at a major um, collegiate program. So uh, we did that there. And at the time, since we were the first to do it, they had never seen it before. Erin Andrews from ESPN. She mm-hmm. was doing, you know, Thursday night football and Friday night football and college game day stuff. So my, like my third game. And she's like, hey, we gave you some love today. You know, you got some camera time on ESPN. And shout out to Aaron Andrews and the, the, the production team at ESPN because whenever they did an ESPN game at Rutgers after that, they always had me in some capacity. And it was because of that that I was able to take those relationships from Rutgers. Shout out to Andrew Robinson. Uh, of course, Coach Shianu, Coach Flood, who is now, you know, Fl- Coach Flood went from Alabama from Rutgers to Alabama and now he's um, at, at UT and Drew Robinson that's my guy he went all over and 
now he's with uh, with the Huddle Group, I believe. Mm-hmm. Lindsey Shea went to the NFL from Rutgers, and when the Jets were looking for somebody, she was like, "You guys got to hire Yoshi. He he was my guy there at, at Rutgers. So that's how I got into the Jets. And then after that, it was I'm still with Rutgers. Rutgers signs into the Big Ten. Big Ten sees me for a game. They're like, we want that at our championship events. So big ups, to, big ups to Jade Burroughs. Uh, Jade gets me for the first time. So we do it in 2014 and do the Big Ten championship game. Uh, great atmosphere in Indianapolis. And because of Jade's relationships, she introduces me to a person by the name of Beth Malifa. This is circling back to what my brother said because I'm, you know, a big fitness guy. Um, in like 2001, my brother's like, you know what? You wear so much Under Armour, you might as well just try to DJ for them. And I was like, that's going to be a goal one day. Beth Malifa runs events for Under Armour. And. I got her contact information. We met through Jade. And because of that, I ended up doing my first UA event of which, uh, you know, the founder and chairman, Kevin Plank, uh, was in attendance for in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I ended up doing Beth's wedding. And from that, that was like, okay, well, all the event people are from Under Armour were, were at Beth's wedding. So it's just like, hey, look, let's just have Yoshi do Under Armour events. And it snowballed into relationship after relationship. And at the time, in 2016, uh, well, 2015, I'm getting ready for um, our wedding. And I was like, you know what? I was like, I, was like, I want to do the Devils, too. I want to do hockey. I've never done hockey before. I want to do hockey. I saw that my homie Daniel Cherry, who I met 10 years before, uh, we met in the studio at an event for uh, for Gangstar. I saw okay. Daniel Cherry was over there, and I was like, yo, if you ever need me for a Devils game, let me know. And he's like, let's just do it. So Dan Cherry was the, C- the the chief marketing officer at the time of the Devils. So that's how I got my 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 way into the Devils. And so shout to Jill Cucci, uh, Ben Broder, and uh, the incredible Pete Canarazzi and Alexa Ilker. Everybody from the, from the Devils, world class on how they treated you and their knowledge. And it's through those people that I met the folks from Van Wagner. So shout out to Bob at Van Wagner, Jeff, and the entire team there because Van Wagner, if you guys don't know, they produce like 99% of sports content in the world. From the Olympics to the Super Bowl to MLB to the championship games in college football to anything, figure skating, racing, the USFL. And that's how I got into Major League Baseball and the USFL. So wow. The theme wow. is relationships. If you nurture them and you truly care about them, don't be that <clears throat> person. For like when you're 
looking to approach somebody, don't be that person that only looks me, 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 me. Don't be that person. The number one thing that you could say to anybody is how can I help you? And that's how I've approached everybody. Let me know how I can help you. If there's anything that I could ever do for you. And guess what? That resonates with people. You, you hold them at a higher regard than just what you're looking to do for yourself. So that's the biggest thing that I could tell any DJ, any creative, anybody in business, anybody in life in general is always be looking to help others and be selfless because one day it's going to be returned to you. Life lessons, man. And it, the key is networking. You know what I mean? I've, I learned a lot when I was in Los Angeles recently for, um, WrestleMania week and just the amount of um, people that I was a- I was able to meet people that I didn't know knew me and you just never know who you never know who's going to put you in position to, to 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 be successful you know what I mean you have people speaking on your behalf that were propping you up to get you ready you know what I mean and, mm-hmm. and, that, and those, those are the most amazing relationships you can ever build and speaking of that let's talk about how you and I have met I believe we met at a studio, and I believe, oh, God. I remember the studio. Yeah. And Jungle yes, Jungle City. And we were talking about, and I was looking for, you know, DJ as far as doing um, my remix for every second, which had a which had a multiple amount of stop and goes. And that's another story for another day. But you and I had collabed. We, we, we the first day we met, you know, we we clicked right away, and let's talk about first as far as your experience with music production, how you were able to put everything together when once you heard my record, and you wanted to stick to that but also make it your own. How did that yeah. all come to be? Yeah. So, um, well, God, what year was that? Was that like two thousand seventeen or eighteen? That was two thousand eighteen, nineteen. I okay. I believe. Yeah. So we met 2018, 2019. Yeah. Um, I had been dabbling in like making, you know, m- records, m- music, I'm not going to say sounds for the the better part of like 20 years. Right. So mm-hmm. I finally tell my wife, listen, I know it's expensive. I'm going to bet on myself and I'm going to actually pursue music production as, as another, you know, platform and avenue she's like okay go ahead build everything in this beautiful studio that you can't see because derek has a bootleg background (laughs) (laughs) and we're we're on zoom right now and if you guys can see this background so you know i i I spend the time and the money i I put a put together this beautiful studio so i don't have to be in the studio to work and then i had produced a a couple of tracks already that were, you know, gaining traction and remixes with people. And that was also also through collaboration, right? So the main person that, like, I was never the technical person. I was always the, here's my idea, help help me lay it down into the DAW, and it'll be your track. But in the little side notes... I'm the collaborator, right? Right, right. So on this one, it was the same thing. 
But this time, I sat and I studied other producers on the actual workflow of production. I'm terrible at mixing music as as a music producer. I'm horrific at it. Um, I'm often bottom heavy in terms of, you know, sonically being bottom heavy and, and um, having piercing highs. So I'm horrific at that. I need to get better as a mixer that way. But idea-wise and laying something down, by the time we got to your remix, then it was like, ooh, I want to make this. I want to make this more of an anthem, and yes. that, that's what we did. Yeah, that was a that, that was a discussion you and I had because I remember you were like, "Okay, I want this to mimic what you've already done, but we need to take it to another level with this remix." And I can remember hearing the the earlier sessions, and I'm just thinking, "Okay, I see where he's going now." Because at first, I was just trying to think like. Where how like where can we where else could we go with this? And I'm not, like gonna when lie, I heard... I'm not gonna lie. I programmed and wrote like four different drops. Right. <laughs> for for your remix. Because I was like, I gotta get this right. So I right. programmed and wrote like four different drops. And then I don't even know where that file is now because I I finished that at somebody's house. And that's what we came to. You know, it was just like that's the one. That the, the final drop, the final version, I was like, that's the one. But like Every every two weeks, I was writing a new drop, and that's what mm-hmm. took so long because I was like, "No, I don't like that drop. It's gonna be this one." All right, that's cool. And then yeah, I would listen to it for like two, three weeks, and it's like, "No, I, I, I want to write another drop." Yeah, and I mean, even the actual uh, the the radio version of it, uh, you pitched some ideas for a drop that happened after the bridge that yeah. really made the song come to life after the fact and it was just a minor it was almost like you have a piece of furniture that's a little loose and you have the screwdriver and you just tighten the screws that's basically what it was and it just made that much of a difference my producer a shout out to stefan mosley he's over in germany yeah, Steph. You know, he, yeah i um it was just one of those things and i was just reaching as a matter of fact i was on set of a um of a music video by uh this rapper named kimba he's from the bronx and in between whatever we were doing, I was literally emailing back and forth with Stefan. It's like, okay, Yoshi thinks we should do X, Y, and Z, and here's why. And I think I gave all the instructions, and I think within maybe a few hours, he hit me back, and he was like, hey, I got something for you. And it was actually the, the finished version of what you all hear. So you can all thank Stefan and Yoshi for making my record making account. sound... Uh, say again? I said... um you know, thanks, Stefan, for making it count. Yeah, I mean, it was his track um, that I wrote to, and I could I told him to send me a couple dance tracks, and he's like, "All right, I got you." And that's what we. That's you know, I wrote the lyrics to that you know to that record. So I'm it's one of my. If it's if it's a lot of, if it's a list of things that I'm really proud of that I've done, that's definitely at one of the top of the list of things that I've done in in my career because it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of sacrifice, and it taught me a lot about myself and the things that I'm, that I'm capable of in regards to teamwork and coming together for a common cause. So I'm super, super happy about how it all turned out, but let's talk about 
a really transit like a transitional period for a lot of people in your field and that was the 2020 pandemic <laughs> now djs obviously have to play out at clubs events you know in your case a lot of sporting events etc cetera, etc cetera. but of course the whole world shut down um which led to you partnering with twitch how did all of that come to be as far as coming up with an idea to stay busy during a global pandemic? Yeah. Pandemic came and I was like, man, I went from, you know, being out 200 plus nights a year to twiddling my thumbs, reading a lot. We went on, my wife and I went on a lot of walks, you know, walk the dog everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, we drove, we drove around a lot just to drive to see people, mm -hmm. and, you know, the drive by birthdays. You remember those? Oh yeah. Graduations. <laughs> exactly. And, um, my friend, uh, miss Ninja, she is a DJ from LA, incredible talent, beautiful mm -hmm. person too, inside and out. She's DJing and she's like, Oh, I'm, I'm going live on Facebook. I was like, this was like March. Mm -hmm. April. I was like, you know what? I want to do that. I was like, I built this nice studio here. Let's showcase that. I got like this little like bootleg camera from from Amazon because you couldn't get any cameras. Everyone wanted to be a streamer in 2020. Right. right. You couldn't get any cameras. And I didn't know anything about operating video. Like I'm proficient as a photographer. I didn't think that being proficient as a photographer would translate to video work, uh, you know, in the way that it did. And I wish I had known because then I would just, I would have just used my photography gear that I now have. So I go live on Facebook the first time and I have like three laptops going and it's way too busy. And we had like 2000 people that like pulled up for my first time that I went live. I'm like, what the hell is this? Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting tipped by doctors and surgeons. They're just like, dude, thank you. Like, we've been we've been at the COVID shit nonstop. You know, this is our only break. We're playing you. You know, we're playing your music in the break room so we could all feel good. So doctors, nurses, surgeons tipping me five six hundred dollars, bro. And I was like, wow, wow. You know, people who actually legitimately matter in life not just because they're friends, but because of the work that they do for the, the, their community and, and the people in general right. are really consuming what I'm doing here on Facebook Live. And then eventually Facebook Live started um, copyright striking everyone, so they would mm -hmm. shut your streams down. And my homie, uh, Illmind, who is an accomplished music producer, uh, you know, from Black Panther to Eminem to 50 Cent, Illmind has just he's been a beast and he still is a beast he was streaming music production sessions on twitch and he's like bro come to twitch come to twitch so i did i went live on twitch for my first time uh july 19th or something like that i had like three people the next week i had three people and then by the third week it was like, holy shit, a couple of, you know, a couple of hundred people.
It's like, damn, this is crazy. And the more that I built on it, the more that I was like, all right, I need to upgrade everything. So um, I upgraded the sound. I upgraded to three legitimate movie cameras that are here. Okay. And, you know, it was an experience that helped me become a better event DJ because now whenever a camera is in front of my face before I just used to DJ now post COVID because I'm so comfortable looking down at the barrel of a, a camera lens from being here in this pandemic for so long and, you know, doing it three days a week in, in 2020 and in 2021, whenever I have video cameras or photographers that are shooting at me with, with their gear, I'm actually interacting with them and I'm giving them the show, which in turn has allowed me to, you know, keep my clients virtually, you know, um, a, a lot of my corporate clients that I had uh, when everything shut down and I, they saw that I was streaming. They were like, well, can you do that for us? It's like, yeah, sure. So I was doing, you know, I was DJing town halls. I was DJing marketing shows and conventions and expos. And, you know, I still, I still do virtual events for uh, three healthcare companies and, and uh, one fashion brand. Wow. It, it really goes to show you that as much negative that came with the global pandemic, you know, people, you know, dying, unfortunately, I think people were getting really, really sick. The other side to it is that we learned how to adapt to it. And especially as creatives, we're able to figure out ways to do this. Like I filmed my music video in my house. That's how I was able to get that done. Yeah. And that, and I mean, if you would have told me this and was it three years prior to that, I would have been like, wait, what? <laughs> Are you kidding me? But that's that's how we were able to adjust and adapt. Now this is just a normal way of life that we're able to do all these things right. virtually and being able to do it efficiently. That's the most important thing I I can I can say when it when it comes to that. But you've mentioned one charity that was the uh, the Christopher Dana Reed Foundation that was with Eric Legrand and of course um, Cystic Fibrosis, uh, Gigi's Playhouse, A Fight for Children DC, it, you know the, a lot of you know charities that you have affiliations with. Let's talk about those relationships a little bit. Yeah, so you know Eric Legrand, shout out to my homie. He was paralyzed uh, for Army versus Rutgers football, and when he started his philanthropic ways with the Christopher and Dana Reed Foundation. It was like, hey, you're already DJing my events. Do you want to do these other ones? And it was like, okay, yeah, yeah, let's do that. So that was my real exposure to uh, higher acuity events and, and, and higher um, exposure events, high leverage events for legitimate and major foundations right so i took my mm -hmm. experience there with the christopher and dana reed foundation and it was like hey Gigi's playhouse needs this too right because if you're doing a gala you're either booking a band or you're booking a dj dj 
Right. Right. And then there's other there are other events. There's the ancillary events like um, spin events, football, Zumba. And when coordinators leave and they go somewhere else, they'll bring you with them as long as you have a good relationship. So that's how I was able to do that. And, you know, we just came off of uh, fight for children honors the second uh, the second year that we were doing it um, with uh, a fight for children down in DC. And that's my favorite, favorite event to do every year. Um, last year I was with Aloe Black nice. and, and Macklemore. And this year it was uh, Lethal Sadi and myself and OAR. So, you know, it's, and it's also, it's, it's great because you're not just playing events that are, there to entertain people though we are there as entertainers we're right. entertaining people while raising money for a good cause and and that's to me that is the most beneficial thing that i can take out of being a dj it's you're doing it for the greater good of entertainment and you're doing it as we raise you know luckily 50 million dollars for inner city youth of, of uh, washington dc that's incredible and i'm like i said i i know there's been plenty of times you know if you promoted things on um, social media i know there's been some uh, causes that you've i've actually donated to and you know on behalf you know you for so you and i've done that and you know, it's good to see, you know, entertainers, you know, doing these things. And it's not more just for clout, but it's really truly what you believe in and in, in, in organizations that you're really proud to represent for sure. Now, there's another side to DJ Yoshi, and that's you mentioned it a little bit ago, and that's photography in which you actually did a photo shoot for me um, yeah. last fall. So how did photography come into play? Uh, my father was uh, an amateur photographer, you know, I mean. How many times do y'all walk around and see an Asian person with a camera, right? So my dad was that guy. I always like to joke around about that, mm -hmm. um, especially with um, my, my wife who's Italian. Mm -hmm. So I like to joke around like when I'm with her family. It's just like, oh, here comes the Asian guy with the camera. <laughs> so my dad um, taught me how to use uh, my first camera. It was a Nikon, like F-series camera something like that uh back in 1990 he let me use it for the first mm. time uh, i took photography classes in high school and i would develop my own pictures and it was just a thing it was it was another outlet uh because a lot of times you know as creatives were in front of the camera but now you get to be behind the camera and you get to tell a story differently you, you get to tell a story visually instead of musically right mm -hmm. so the the images that I have in my head after meeting people, after meeting my clients um, or their headshots, you know, a headshot can tell a story. A lifestyle shoot should tell a story, right? A branding shoot, photo shoot should tell a story. And I, I think we did a pretty good job with, with yours. And especially in the pandemic when all I was doing, bro, like we were taking hikes I was bringing my camera and I was shooting again. And I was like, wow, I'm really enjoying just going out and shooting. Granted, for, for those who are in 
who for the amateur photographers out there that are disgruntled or disheartened that they take a hundred shots and one ends up being usable, don't be. That ratio gets a little better as you shoot more. And still, there are some times where I think we shot uh, eleven hundred photos for your photo shoot, Derek. And yeah. I recently just shot. 2200 photos around there for another client and we ended up with a hundred usable photos if that yes it's like that a lot of times yeah. I mean, you, you, you you want to make sure that you're getting the right angle to make sure the, the right lighting is so many different um factors that goes into getting the right shot yeah yeah so uh, you know before i used to get this heart and like wow why does why does this what why, why do ninety percent of my shots suck? And then you get like the 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 one the one to ten percent that are good. So it all it takes is that one, right? Like even landscape wise, when I shoot landscape photography, uh, I was recently out in Hawaii, and I was shooting landscape photography, and the four landscapes that I nailed have been purchased. I, I don't even know how many times they've been purchased. Um, but, you know, I took 1,800 shots during that trip. So four from 1,800. But guess what? The four resonate with people. So And they're buying them. Yeah, and they're buying them. So Where can they buy those, by the way? I wish I could tell you. I uploaded it. I I uploaded to a company that just distributes to different uh, websites and art sites. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the end of the month, they're just like, "Hey, someone bought your bought bought it, and you know, but they bought a print. Here's your here's your ten dollars." <laughs> but you're getting I, something back from it. Yes, I I did sell. I mean, considering that the gear that I have is is like nineteen thousand dollars, which is like it's nauseating. To think that, you know, twelve thousand dollars that is is camera bodies. Uh, sorry, it's camera lenses and the rest of their bodies. Right. Um, but I made ten dollars on that photo. You know, a hundred times over. So, I'm I'm slowly working back. No, no, but for for me, it's um, it's not about the money that I get back from it. It's the enjoyment that I have as I'm there telling the story capturing the moments and for me i love to capture the moments because then it gets ingrained in my memory and and you know especially with you and friends whenever they hire me it's always something that's nice to to have because i have a visual memory and i just wish that i was a better journalistic person from all of my travels and all of my events and my entire history i never really brought a camera with me. Mm-hmm. I wish I had done that because I have so many memories that are stuck in my mind that it would have been nice to have something visual to go along with it. Maybe write a book. Never know. I can write the book, but then it's, hey, it's, you know, the, the, the stories are more um, a reflection of my past versus having actual hard pictures and yeah. videos to look back at and say wow i i can't believe that i was a part of this 
and kind of and looking it through your lens, through your eyes, through your right. lens, so to speak, right. for sure. Right. A couple more questions. We're going to get out of here. So, from a career perspective, what are your short, your current short term and long term goals? So I break these down and I call them the macro goal. Mm-hmm. So I come up with macro goals and then I break down the macro goal by five micro goals. And for those who don't understand what a macro and a micro is, the macro is the big thing that you're working towards. But if you don't know how to work towards it because you can't break it down, then you have micro goals that work towards breaking, you know, that work towards achieving your ma- your macro goal. Macro goals, right. Macro goal number one, work with Ryan Seacrest in some capacity. Okay. Macro goal number one, work with Ryan Seacrest in some capacity. And we are taking the steps and we've been taking the steps for the past two years uh to making that happen so hopefully it, it, it does happen macro goal number two to be able to be fully financially independent that i can focus more on creative passion projects than projects if that makes sense to you yeah because i still have to say yes to things that take me away from here take me away from family take me away from uh you know going out and hiking and shooting a landscape shot uh but i don't regret the opportunities that i have and the at times the busy schedule that i have i don't regret that at all um I'm figuring out ways that I can have more passive income come in so I can take longer trips with my wife and with my family to be able to do more passion projects on the side. You know, it's, that's, that's the other macro goal, but I mean, who, who doesn't have that goal of exactly, you know, I hear you. Now, what was the biggest piece of advice that was ever given to you? Whether it's family, whether it's someone in the in the in the creative career space, what was the biggest piece of advice that was ever given to you? Do what you love and love what you're doing, and don't chase the money. Eventually, And shout out to the homie Lee Cadena for this one. This this was his. Eventually, the right person, the right time, or the right opportunity will present itself to you where your passion for what you're doing in music will translate and it will resonate with them. And because it does that, it'll open more opportunities for you. And ever since Lee and I sat down in his office and he dropped that on me, I've tried to reinforce and show people how much I love doing what I do when I'm doing it. Because like your body language changes your interactiveness changes how many times have you been to like 
a private event or anywhere and you just see somebody there you know like djing arms crossed or just he doesn't want to be there right 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 it's just like well do i really want that person being at my event exactly it's you know i'm interactive with people i'll look I'll, i'll engage with people in the audience i'll sing to them i'll clap with them you know if they're if they're doing a move and they're, and they're dancing like I'll, I'll i'll clap it up for them or like i'll i'll, I'll try to like do the same shit that they're doing mm-hmm. uh, and and that that really sits with people and i actually just booked another corporate event and the person's wedding because she saw me on camera at a marketing expo and was like your energy and your aura that you give off while you're doing what you do is what I wanted my company to experience. And I also want my wedding guests to experience that. So yeah, that just goes to show you what, what Lee said about being passionate and, and showcasing how passionate you are uh, for your craft. Um, It's just really stuck in, in in how it it really pays homage to him. So rest in peace, Lee. Um, We love you, my bro. Definitely, definitely. Where can people find you? Social media, website, YouTube, you name it, Twitch. Give out all your your social media where the people can find DJ Yoshi. Yes, sir. On Instagram and on TikTok, it is Real DJ Yoshi. On Twitter, it is at DJ Yoshi. On Twitch, I am there Wednesday and Friday, 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Sunday, 6 to 8 p.m. for R&B and Oldies on a Sunday. And that's twitch.tv forward slash Real DJ Yoshi or download the Twitch app and it's Real DJ Yoshi. And the new YouTube channel, please hit subscribe to it. It's free. It costs you nothing. I'm literally there trying to drop business gems for new DJs and creatives to build six-figure businesses. And that's youtube.com forward slash DJ Yoshi videos. So I think I need to, I need like a thousand subscribers and 10,000 hours of watch time or something like that to be able to start monetizing. Um, I'm loving every minute of it. You know, Um, I, I had like 50 subscribers and then like I really started to focus in on it. And, uh, you know, more and more each week, you know, it, it goes from, five new ones to 39 new ones to 40 new ones so hopefully we we hit the thousand threshold um i really just started paying attention to youtube and creating there in in the past uh two and a half months so uh thank you to everybody that's that's been early to it well yoshi you know like i said in the beginning of this interview like i said it was an honor for me to uh have you on the show to interview you i know you've been extremely busy with Twitch and with music and, you know, all, you know, the, the, UF, the USFL, all sorts of things was going on. So I appreciate you. And yeah, we had you know, a monster week. We had a monster two weeks for the USFL. I'm so excited. Ratings wise, mm-hmm. crushed it. Ratings crushed it. So I'm, I'm really happy to be a part of this. And again, thank you, Van Wagner, for having me on for that. And again, thank you very much for coming on. And uh, we'll definitely be talking soon. D, I appreciate you guys. Uh, everyone. Have a great night. Have a great day. Have a great week. And remember, be passionate and showcase how passionate you are for what you're passionate about. Well, that does it for this week's edition of the DLU Podcast. Again, I want to thank DJ Yoshi for taking the time out of his busy schedule to come talk to us. And Yoshi, I'll definitely be seeing you soon. 
Well, this weekend, you know, you can catch me at the world-famous Monster Factory at a special start time of 4 p.m. for MFPW, Monsters Are Real. Tickets are on sale now, and you can go to monsterfactory.org, or you can get your tickets at the door, okay? Make sure you come out to 541 Mantua Avenue in Paulsboro, New Jersey, and you see all the stars of the MFPW. You can see yours truly there. Now, my other company, SWF, although I will not be there this weekend because I'm at the Monster Factory, for those in the north, the central Jersey area, you know, check out SWF. They have a two-event day, actually, in Homedale. Um, You can go to swfwrestling.com for tickets for The Rising that starts at 2 p.m., and that features the women of the SWF, and Get in the Ring that starts at 5 p.m., and that's featuring the men's division and is headlined by... ECW original Tommy Dreamer. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram, Snapchat, and TikTok at The Real DT Lou. Facebook is Derek T. Lewis official page. You can go to YouTube and look me up, Derek T. Lewis or The Real DT Lou, and make sure you follow me there. If you have, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, make sure whichever streaming service you are, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, whichever you know streaming service that you're on, make sure you hit subscribe so you get all new content every time a new show is uploaded, okay? Make sure you do that. In addition to, go to shop.derrytlewis.com and get some really cool tees and hoodies. Well, I'm going to get out of here, and as I always say, no matter what you do in life, always remember to make it count. Take care, guys.